Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the next podcast here at Treknababble. This is Kevin. This is Matthew. And uh, we're going to uh, be reviewing uh, the two-parter uh, By Inferno's Light and In Purgatory Shadow. Um, this is one of my favorite two-parters of the series. Uh, it's right up there with for me with um, Improbable Cause and Dies Cast in terms of uh, you know a pair of episodes that just has energy and good story throughout um it's one i always enjoy rewatching, and uh it it certainly does a lot uh in terms of uh pivoting the series yeah um it definitely sticks out in my mind uh especially the second part but you know we'll get there um the first part is in purgatory shadow right um did i get them backwards uh, i think you just said them backwards uh, well, no, you, uh, it's it's a good thing we did that because, I, in fact, I had queued up the wrong episode. So glad we <laughs> caught that now. We are a well-oiled machine here at Treknababble. We are we are just on top of our game. <laughs> yep. Okay, so we're doing In Purgatory Shadow. Um, you know, it, in some ways, it seems like uh, they've kind of been biding their time to get to, the, as the, you know, the main thing, right? you know, the, the Dominion War. They've been talking about it a little bit. So there was the, the little mention during Cisco's uh, sort of prophetic visions, you know, talking about the scarabs and the, uh, you know, the, the locusts darkening the sky or whatever he was talking about. Um, you know, but th they seem to have done a fair number of episodes that have uh, kind of beaten around the bush a little bit, you know, and now they're sort of, the other thing that's interesting is it seems like they're kind of melding the two stories, the Klingon story and the, the Dominion story. Yeah, I, uh, I think uh, one of the things I like about this episode is how it um, uh, merges all of the currently hanging out their story threads. The war with the Klingons, Dukat's guerrilla war with the Klingons. Um, uh, obviously, spoiler alert for all this, uh, event Martok's eventual return. Yeah. Um, it, it, it just like everything the show has been doing i i think this has to really be the point where uh iris steven bear and ron moore finally wore rick berman down and got some qualified permission to do serialized storytelling yeah um and it shows that like there this is just a damn entertaining hour and a half of television well and it shows that they're detail-oriented you know it's like they will go through prior scripts and weave in the things that are, you know, useful and interesting and entertaining. Uh, all right. Well, maybe we should just start. Okay. I'm queued up on the correct episode uh, okay. and ready to go. All right. So let's uh, all simultaneously begin. We will count down. Three, two, one, press play. It's a little so hard have... seeing the standard definition station after the tantalizing glimpse of the uh, high def we got in the the Blu-rays on Birthright, isn't it? Yeah. So Derek Garth was a grip who was uh, killed in a car accident, I guess, during the filming of this episode. All right, so we have Kira, who's very smiley and helping Odo, and she looks like she's kind of getting better from being pregnant. She's still wearing her sort of skort uniform. 
Yeah, she, she sells a little. She, she she well, if nothing else, because she is in fact a woman who just gave birth. She looks like a woman who just gave birth. <laughs> I uh, I feel like this is sort of um, getting back to the whole Kira Odo thing. You know, it's like she finds a dating manual, and he's embarrassed because it's her. Yeah, you know that was something I always thought they uh, should have uh, like. I do not hate it with the intensity with which you hate it. I don't like it. Um, but the Kira Odo romance in, in season six and seven. But if they were going to pull that trigger, while he was a solid, would have been the time to pull that trigger yeah. because then his reversion to changeling shape is now a new and interesting conflict in the budding relationship. Well, yeah, that could be the out. You know, it's like it was cool when you were a solid and we could actually, you know, fornicate. But now that it's like a weird light show where I have to like put my hands in the air and smile, this is lame and I need, you know, a real man, <laughs> you know, I don't know. It, the scene itself is okay here. Not knowing where it's going makes it kind of like, you know, entertaining. Yeah. So they're doing a lot of kind of techno babble, giving us the impression that there, there's a lot of Cardassian uh, stuff going on. I just want to point out, I'm so happy to see that they finally got a uniform jacket for Cisco that fits. Um, I think it was either this or the previous episode that the that his communicator was not sitting on top of the gray shoulder area because it was so oversized that nagged me so so much Um, seeing dax in this episode reminds me of how little she's been used in the past few episodes yeah Uh, i just saw pictures of the las vegas convention she had uh, michael westmore do uh, another like like a uh like anniversary set of spots for her she is still a handsome woman she is she has good bone structure So, I mean, we're getting up. So, there's a lot going on here. So, we've got a new Tora Zial actress. Yeah, I think um, they liked the first one fine, but they wanted to age her up so that they could bring in the Garrick relationship without it being weird. Um, of the three, pro- probably because she just gets the most to do. I like this one. I, I think she's, she's uh, Tracy Middendorf's a good actress. She uh, acts well under the makeup. She plays it as. She, she she is an alien character, but I don't get the sense that she's alien acting, if that makes any sense. Like, her script was young, naive girl falling for the sophisticated, mysterious man who's the only person she might share this connection with home with. And I'm like, okay, that's a... And, and she plays that and not... So, so I, I appreciate that. So, I mean, the portents are all good already. You know, we've got Garrick being secret agenty. Uh, you know, we've yep. got, you know, Odo going back to being a changeling. It's like, whatever that interlude was, it's kind of over now. And we're getting back to the main deal. Well, it, it's, it, it's the teaser. And we've already, we've been involved in now four scenes. Uh, you know, Odo's quarters, ops, 
uh, the replimat and the runabout with a host of different characters and it doesn't feel jerky it doesn't feel unfocused it just feels story is happening we will we yeah. can only we can only afford to remain in these scenes as long as necessary to advance the plot we're telling so there's no wasted time there's no like everything they talk about um i, I guess the bit in Odo's quarters might be filler but it's you know it's good charactery filler um Kira, uh Torzial's one-liner about uh, my father be furious if he knew about this that it, it, it's like a Chekhov's gun it's like that gun will go off later <laughs> in the episode <laughs> yeah no, I mean it's kind of a long teaser you know it was like more than four and a half minutes um but yeah I agree you know it, they kind of had to do the Odo thing just right like as, as the button it, to the last episode yeah yeah just, just to acknowledge that it happened, and if he, it's kind of like you know last time on Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, uh, even though it wasn't precisely the last time, it's two episodes ago. Um, you know, it, it's just like stage setting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so far so good. Uh, you and I both are, you know, ardent lovers of Andrew Robinson. Whenever he's on the show, and I. I think the portent is good too. Like you say, with the Chekhov's gun, uh, it's like, oh, maybe we're going to see Ducat in this episode. Right. Like they've mentioned Ducat, and that always makes me happy. Also, good writing. She didn't say her father's name, and neither did did Bashir because they both know who her father is. It's, it's, yeah. There was, there was no gross expository stuff, you know. And And even the Odo stuff was not terribly expository. Yeah. Um, I like that Bashir. Fig- like detected the deception that's like a mark of the growth of their relationship of course we're going to learn that um you know there's a reason Bashir is so keyed into like you know but still it it played credibly in the moment before the subsequent reveal that this makes sense for Bashir to have realized this well I guess the guest star uh, listings have given it given it away that Dukat is going to show up and J.G. Hertzler. Yeah, this is nice dialogue. I like this. Yeah, uh, uh, w- when the relationship started, and uh, th- there was something about the dynamic, um, a combination of uh, Alexander Siddig's youth and the character's like lack of formation that just made his half of it a little too perky this kind of writing him as a smarmy asshole yeah this is much more fun to watch like it's like when he does the when garrick has these types of scenes with like with odo where there's it's just you know like a verbal chess match and you know that's that is just more fun to watch i actually like bashir here yeah so we have our plot thread you know uh Garrick is going to be searching after an Aubertine. Oh, and an Aubertine, another great name. Like, like all the great guest actors we've like really <laughs> liked. Like, I think the only person missing is like Louise Fletcher. I don't think the Kai makes an appearance in this episode. Or, or Doctor Mora. But. Yeah, like you know, it, it's been creeping up on me. Uh, you know, because there was the episode where Kira has a phaser and now the doctor has a phaser. This whole no phaser policy on deep space nine seems to have kind of fallen by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah. People can just brandish phasers whenever they want. 
Well, I think they realized it was one of those sentences that Odo said in season one that sounded like it made sense, but is really constrictive narratively and somewhat impractical to either enforce or explain away every time. So yeah, let's just pretend it's not there. So, you know, fun, interesting story ideas, survivors of the attack, you know, where are they? What are they doing? We've had less successful versions of this kind of idea. Yeah. You know, like in uh, Birthright in TNG. Yeah. Well, you know, so what, what we're going to get, you know, not to spoil it, uh, is terrific. Yeah. And it's it's fun to watch Garrick manipulate because his, like, you can come with me, Doctor, and we can be spies together. And, like, yeah. He's, yeah. he's playing on what he knows will work for these characters and watching Robinson do it is just delightful. Yeah. It, it, yeah. <laughs> like, there should just be a show of Andrew Robinson being deceptive. So we're getting a relationship spat. Uh, I, is, and it makes sense. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Have We've seen Warp's Mechleth before, right? At least in like this season of Deep Space Nine. Well, he used it in First Contact. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yes, it was introduced in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I, I have to say, like, it's... It's a little out of nowhere that he suddenly no longer favors the Batlet given to him by his father, but as yeah. a piece of visual design and much more efficient actual weapon, I do like it. No, I never had a problem with the Mechleth. Uh, I there are, every so often Star Trek really dates itself uh, for the shows that were around before the internet became a big thing like i i think when this episode aired i, I was still using web crawler on my dial-up um <laughs> so just the idea that warp's opera collection would be a collection of of uh rods indicating like one opera per rod like one cd or one you know record just tickles me like if that that if that were i could have every klingon opera ever like on my phone and it's just i i <laughs> The, the failure to predict how micro, how small and how universal data would eventually become in our society is like a charming blind spot when I watch 90s Star Trek. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's interesting because they started to get things right. You know, it's like people work on documents on pads, the computer can be dictated to and they can save things. But then they get other things wrong. It's like, oh, I have to find that pad, right, the pad that with has the this document right, on because it. Because at the time, the idea of reducing every book to one pad per book would still have been a revolution. Like, yeah. like if all we had were a stack of pads to replace a shelf of books, that would still be great. But it's not as far as we. It's not anywhere near as far as we were actually able to go. So the actress here is doing a good job of, you know, selling with her eyes that she's into him. Yeah. And I have to say, I like the, the costume people always do a good job with the Cardassians. Who, whoever was responsible for the design brief for this species just nailed it. Just uh, the civilian wear for the Cardassians is always like the, you know, interesting, like fat layers and shoulder detailing that it, it looks great from a distance. It looks great in close-ups. It, it just, well, her, her outfit might be the most fetching Cardassian wear we've seen. Yeah. And, and it has the benefit of looking like, like someone with the correct skin tone and neckline could wear that dress 
as a human. Like, that's an attractive dress to my eye and not having to round up for, I guess, you know, other species have different tastes. I have to say, I like the way Robinson played these scenes. It's, we know enough about Garrick to know that he is not simply a romantic type. So when he says things like, you know, your connection to home, he's not sentimental. So he, that might, that it, that can't be the whole truth, but that doesn't mean it's completely a lie. There's, there's an ambiguity there that I think Robinson sells as much, if not more than the actual dialogue. Ah, and Gal Dukat already. What are we eight <laughs> minutes in? Well, a good entrance. Oh, I love that line. She'll never forgive you, you know. Like, I just... Oh, that... <laughs> These two could teach a master class. They really could. It just... Do you know what? I, this story could have easily been extraneous filler, but I, I think two things keep it really interesting. Uh, one, it's an opportunity for two very good actors and guest stars to just act the hell out of a scene. And there's something, I don't know, like achingly familiar from human fiction about the, you know, girl falling in love with her father's mortal enemy. There's that, that's just, it's almost like, a, it, like, it, of course she did, because of course she did. Like, that, that there's, there's something very familiar about the dynamic that saves it from being cheap. You know, and so this stuff, you have no idea. Uh, you know, it's just it's just that tickling, teasing, you know, Garrick has such a deep character who's done so many bad things. Because yeah, you know what? We don't know how much it pains him to say that because they never told us what he did. And I'm not mad at that. There's nothing he could have... Whatever they eventually said he would have done to Ducat to piss him off so bad would not have been as much fun as the half-truths and hints that we played with. But still... It's, yeah, it's just, you use the right word, layered. Uh, just, yeah, a lot of fun. At the first sign of betrayal, I will kill him. Good straight man works. Oh, yeah, 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 and, yeah, no, he... See, guys, this is what you need to do. None, none of this creepy, abusive boyfriend shtick. Like, yeah, that was funny. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they've found the better uh, tone for the relationship. Yeah. By having Dax really kind of be in the driver's seat, you know, and Worf being the hapless, uh, you know, straight man, yeah. essentially. Yeah. That That's just... Yeah, there there are a lot of creepy uh, overtones if Worf is domineering and a jerk, you know, and it's much better when Dax is is that. Well, and it makes Par partially because it plays against type, and and it makes sense given Worf's romantic history. Like Dax isn't exactly like Kalar, but they're they're cut from the same cloth. They're you know, you, you could see Susie Plaxen delivering a couple of those lines. Ah, <sighs> Kevin, don't remind me. I just watched <laughs> the emissary, and yeah. <sighs> <sighs> oh, I, uh, I know I was there Kalar was so good <laughs> uh, uh, okay let's move on back to this yeah and uh, all respect to Terry Farrell way better than Terry Farrell ever ever could have done it 
uh, Susie Plaxon was just scintillatingly superb. I like the new uniform on Worf. Uh, both the red and the T- um, first contact uniform, I think, flatter him. Like, it just contrasts well with the makeup. It looks... It's the most martial Star Trek It makes uniform. sense with his body type. Yeah, yeah. It, it draws... He has a... He's barrel-chested and broad-shouldered, and it draws attention to that, as opposed to, like, the... Like, occasion, like especially, like, first two seasons. Like, chicken legs. Like, what the hell? <laughs> So I will say it's potentially dangerous to split the story like this. Like most of our favorite episodes have had one story thread. Yeah. And we're, we're doing this, you know, going back and forth. Um, uh, given that we know where it's going and eventually these two storylines will not just intersect, but explode. Um, I think it makes sense to like, and here's the thing. Normally when we're pissed at an AB or ABC split, it's because either B is so much better than A that it makes the whole episode suck, or B is just silly and distracting from an A that needed more breathing room. Here, A and B are both vital, active, interesting, well-acted stories that I want to keep watching. So it's it just feels paced as opposed to uneven. Ah, oh, I love that line. Like I said, <laughs> he's a Cardassian. <laughs> See, this is a good scene for Kira. Yeah. In my opinion, and I know you disagree with me somewhat on this, her last couple outings have not been good. Uh, um, I liked, I liked her, I liked her big scene in Darkness and the Light. I liked the, the her big scene. scene was good, but yeah. overall for the character, it was not a good show. I, I think that was more writing than acting, but we digress. I think. Well, what I'm saying yeah. is this. This is nothing against Nana Visitor. Yeah. You know, I'm saying this scene, writing-wise, yeah. is very good for her. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, she's like intelligent and forceful, but not stupid or domineering or yeah. weird. I, I think um, both in terms of writing and acting, the character is best when everything's a simmer as opposed to a boil. Like Michelle for and I've made and I and I brought this up before, but I, I really think they were writing for Roe for a while. And Michelle Forbes can handle a more overt combativeness. That's just, it's just in her wheelhouse. Where I think Kira is best at a simmer. There, there's something going on behind the eyes because she's sitting at breakfast and has to deal with her planet's Hitler. There, there, there's just like a tension under the surface of having to do that that reads really well. If they were going to go for a first season shouty, stabby Kira, yeah, that would be insufferable. So yeah, I, I agree. Nice little Earl Grey reference there. <laughs> I find it interesting that they're not taking the Defiant. I, I guess it's a trade-off. Like, the Defiant's cloak, but the cloak has proven less than 100% effective, and I, maybe the runabout's more plausible deniability. Or Well, I, I feel like the only reason they're on a runabout is because they only want these two characters to be there. Yeah, yeah. yeah also true. Oh, like so even, even we that have Garrett line. trying to manipulate yeah. Worf. Oh, so good, like 
oh, just, yeah, it's just, uh, it's a joy to watch. Because it's like, you know he's doing it. And you know what? Uh, Bashir, Worf knows he's doing it, right, too. Yeah, he, and that's what, yeah, like Cisco knows. They all know that he's manipulating them, but that doesn't mean it's not going to work. <laughs> Yeah, and he makes a valid argument. It's the honorable thing to do. Oh, so, oh God, yeah. Oh, it's such a good line. And Maybe not, but you do, yeah. Oh, very good. I agree. And he sets the course. So the nebula effect looks pretty good. Yeah, I, I believe that is that's I it's it looks similar to the nebula from Vortex in season one, which I believe was a restructuring or re partial reuse of the Mutar Nebula. That's a really nice view through the view screen. I mean, yeah. it's not perfect as far as effects go, but I'm glad they went for it. Yeah. Because so often these runabout scenes, it's like two guys in a room with no connection to what's going on outside. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the first time we're seeing the Dominion like battleship as opposed to just the standard Jemadar yes. destroyer. Great. From design. afar, they looked like Promelian battle cruisers. So, at 22 minutes in, we're getting, uh, you know, there's going to be a big attack. They're going to attack the Alpha Quadrant. You know, so, obviously, something, it's like, as, as someone who's wanted things to start happening for a while on Deep Space Nine, it's like, finally, they're going to, you know, they're going to do this thing. Interesting scene break. You know, Garrick being bludgeoned into unconsciousness. So we have a little baby dialogue. So I'm glad they, they threw in this dialogue. Had she just forgotten that time she was pregnant, that would not have made sense. Well, and it's, it's fun that... Uh, it's fun that Dax, you know, is joking with her because, of course, she's had many children. Yeah. <laughs> it says Jemadar and some coordinates I can't make out. How can you not make them out if you know their coordinates? Well, maybe maybe he can only make out two of the three, so we can't, you know, place it in like a three-dimensional space. And so here comes the sort of overall series question, which I, you and I have both asked, which is, you know. How far up Starfleet's ass is Starfleet's head? To, to not have a fleet permanently 
yeah. uh, stationed at this incredibly important because given the proximity at the one point at which these people could actually come into your territory yeah no. and especially one like once it's clear the wormhole exists and cardassian space is apparently like literally next door it's it's practically the border you'd think it would make sense to do that so I love this set. Oh, God, I yes. like that they showed the windows uh, facing outward. I like the model yeah. from outside, you know, like the asteroidal kind of thing. Yeah. That sleeve is not great on the, the Jemadar yeah. soldier. Yeah. It's pretty clear it's like a latex sleeve. Internment Camp 371. It, to me, a question is kind of raised, and perhaps it will be answered, but kind of raised, like, why do the Dominion need prisoners at all? Uh, they strike me as a long game kind of people. Like, if there's... It, uh, assuming there's they, something useful about them, Right, like, 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 assuming they have absolute faith in their ability to make sure they don't escape, which, you know, their orthodoxy would seem to think they do then there's no reason not to keep them around if there's any non-zero chance of their eventual utility. I will say, I've never really liked the Bajoran military, not the Bajoran, the Cardassian military uniform. Yeah, it's not great. Because it just, it like sort of sits on the pants in that way, and it's just like, it's like you're wearing a giant thing on your shoulders, and the rest of you... Part of it is also Mark Alimo is very thin. Yeah. And so in profile, he looks really weird. You know, from the front, he looks, you know, very imposing. It's an improvement over the... I just watched The Wounded this afternoon. Yes. Um, <laughs> over those. but um, It is an improvement. It, and also, it just kind of looks like it's made of rubber. Yeah. You know? It just moves too much, which I'm sure is good for the actor. Yeah, that's a great shot. I love yeah, that. Yeah. Love that model. That'd be really cool to see in uh, HD. Do you yeah. Hear, do you hear that? It would be really cool to see that in HD. If People I, would pay for the privilege of yeah, seeing it in HD. I, I bought TNG twice. I'll buy DS9 twice. <laughs> it's like Ketrasol White's really blasting into his system there. Yeah, he must be blissed out. You know, I bet you the dude directing the episode had to love this day. There is not a single human face in this scene. <laughs> like, even once we get to uh, the eventual reveal of Bashir in the barracks, that's one dude who doesn't need three hours of makeup to get on set today. <laughs> yeah, to, to coordinate all these people, you know. I mean, this is what producers do, you know, the, the logistical stuff. Uh, and whatever you want to say about Berman, he produced the shit out of all these series. Oh yeah, you know? he he's a, he's a, a scheduling and logistical yeah. mastermind. Yeah, and he, from all I've read, put in you know sixteen hour days. Yeah, yeah. So at thirty minutes, roughly twenty eight minutes, we see General Martha. I remember this is one of those times where Star Trek actually did like make me go <gasps> with its reveal where it like wasn't there there was no hint, there was no lead up. Um like even seeing JG Hertzler's name, it's like no, no reason like to to connect. Yeah, that he up. could be some other alien. Yeah. 
and it's just like holy shit oh my god he was a change he was a ch- and it's great because like he was a changeling oh my god that's right he was a changeling like that's just cool now refresh my memory kevin he was not missing his eye earlier no no I, okay the the eye injury is i believe uh, spo- uh i think they eventually explicitly identify the individual jemhadar who was responsible for doing all that business yeah i mean it's a good way to differentiate the characters yeah yeah oh i'm so excited we get to see a novrintain i love a novrintain <laughs> and there's our uh Return of the Jedi bounty hunter. Yeah. <laughs> it's a brain, folks. Just get over it. Yes, it looks like Return of the Jedi. And, the you know, we've seen it before. The way Robinson plays the devotion yeah. to Tink is quite good. Yeah. It, it, it makes the eventual re- reveal and resolution of this arc completely credible. Like a lesser actor who wasn't acting like they were father-son the entire time anyway would have made the reveal feel a little cheap, but, like, no, it makes perfect sense. I like the wall design. Like, the like the uh, trapezoidal bolted layer thing just looks really cool. It's one of those tiny design choices that just reads really well on television. Yeah. I like that Tane is, you know, sort of snotty to him. I love that this actually effectively followed up on the last two-parter that, you know, just blew our socks off. Like, it, it's... Because, it, you know, they, they uh, Garrick made the, you know, question the, the, the founder about the fleet and she brushes him off. So it's nice. It's cool that they followed up on it in an interesting way. It kind of makes it so that you could just kind of blow through the series you know, and jump between sort of the big plot element yeah. two-parters, you know. it. This, this is what I'm saying about, it's like clearly they had a big head of steam like a season ago, and then it just sort of went nowhere, and they did a bunch of one-off episodes, and now they're back. You know, it's like, Bolton, what was all that about? And maybe you're right. Maybe it was internal, you know, dissension and argument and strife. Like, yeah, maybe once Berman was paying attention to Voyager more, they were able to just, like, like okay, like, <laughs> parents are gone, we're throwing a party. <laughs> At maximum warp, two days. WTF, Starfleet. Like, I mean, even under the idea that, that this is supposed to be the literal reaches of Federation space, sent, we, you send the Enterprise, the, the like, the those flagship of the Federation, half those episodes, they're ferrying vaccines. They're doing cargo runs. You clearly have the ships to, like, come on, people. I, I, I like the shout out to Professor Khan at the Trill Science Academy. Good, good, like, beautiful use of continuity. I find it odd that Cisco is willing to seal off the wormhole. You know, I feel like he would be fighting against it because he has come to care so much about Bajor. Well, I, I think balancing, balancing contact with the prophets versus the fear 
of a Dominion invasion. Like maybe, maybe they, the episode doesn't really have time for any more subplots, but I could see him at least being conflicted. I gotta say the planet behind the asteroid doesn't look great. Yeah. But the asteroid looks great. Ultritium. I love watching J.G. Hertzler act. It's <laughs> like you it's not the like quiet it's 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 a very stylized form of acting, but I think it suits the Klingons so beautifully. Um that he, I mean, like the minute he said the for his first line in Way of the Warrior, you're like, nope. It's like, like Robert O'Reilly, the Dura sisters, Martok in the same breath. Like you are absolutely in that class of species, defi- uh, species defining actor for the for these people. A Romulan, which of course is a good continuity nod to the fact that it was a Romulan Cardassian fleet. That was an, this was another moment that actually genuinely surprised me. Like, yeah. oh, he's a changeling. He's also a changeling. Is everyone... <laughs> uh, uh, it's going back through the um, episodes. Uh, Bashir's wearing the original DS9 uniform here. And yeah. the changeover happens somewhere between the Begotten and... Uh, I think Rapture. Rapture was the first episode that has them, then the Begotten. So technically speaking... Barring, barring informing us that they were wearing both uniforms alternately for a few weeks, Changeling Bashir delivered Kira's baby. <laughs> yep. Whenever anybody goes to a conference, bad things seem yeah, to happen. Don't go to con. That's the lesson of Star Trek. Don't go to conferences. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, every single conference that's ever, it's like Jordy was abducted, Troy was abducted, yep. turned into a Romulan. Uh, you know, they came back and the ship was frozen in time. And now, you know, Bashir has been turned into a changeling. Like the scene cut, you know. Yeah. The smile is maybe a little much. Yeah. Well, he has to be evil in some way so we know who we're looking at. It's, it's yeah. like in a murder mystery when they go like, and it's you, it's you, wasn't it? And then magically their voice drops an octave and they're suddenly all evil. <laughs> but it is nice that, uh, you know, he... He's doing a convincing job. Right. If nothing else, this could have easily been one of those, how did you not know? Seriously, how did you not know? No, there's no way you would know. She is rather busty, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's at least mostly her and then maybe just the the shaping of the dress but she's a well but she was filling out that previous beige number too Torah Naprem no 
this is great dialogue um especially like knowing the end of the episode all of this stuff right here like you have to leave things are changing like oh this is for this is excellent foreshadowing <laughs> So they're using the romance, you know, the budding romance yeah. as a nice little hook. Uh, I mean, the viewer already cares about Worf and probably also about Garrick, yeah. but they're they're giving the characters on screen a reason to care beyond just the sort of plot-like, you know, the sort of plotty reason. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's like yeah. they're demonstrating it. They're yeah. dramatizing it, yeah, yeah. and that's good writing. And they did the groundwork in the uh, previous episode with the, like, one-off actress and the uh, Cardassian sauna bit. So it's not like it came completely out of nowhere. I mean, so going back to Bashir, I wish they hadn't had the character smile like that. Because it could be interesting to question whether this is, in fact, the changeling. Oh, yeah, that could have been fun. Do you know what thing they never did? Like, or they did it once in Adversary, and I really thought they should have followed up on it once the Dominion War broke out. Like, all our tests are to determine if you are a changeling, not which changeling you are. If I were a changeling, you know who I'd replace? Odo. Yeah. <laughs> like... Because he'd be the perfect foil. Right. It's like, of course I'm a changeling. Like, how do we know you're our changeling? It doesn't matter because if you are, we're all screwed anyway, so I'm not going to worry about it. But still, it would have been dramatically interesting. They did a really good makeup and hair job on the prisoners. They look tatty. Yeah. That brain's just been laying there all freaking day. Uh, well, you know what they say about the brain. Oh, this, is just, this is just a good scene. It's just... Ugh. Yeah, very well acted. Yeah, and uh, Paul Dooley did such a good job with, like, you think I'm just a charming, bumbling old fat man, but I'm really not. I'm really scary. That seeing him unspool here at the end is actually upsetting. It's like, it, it really, it's like, wow, he actually, like, I believe he's dying because of this dialogue. Well, and it's, you know, what Garrick is telling him. You know, he's telling him what he wants to hear, what will make him happy in his last moments. It's good stuff. Yeah.
Yeah, no, we're not saying anything here because we're just watching this. It's just, sorry, <laughs> it's just really good. Um, there's nothing for us to nitpick. It's just a well-acted scene. And here's the reveal. A father asking his son. I like the I like the quick cut to Bashir being like, oh, oh, well, now this is interesting, like that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I was I was playing solitaire on my phone. I'm 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 back now. <laughs> and so here he sort of tacitly confirms it. Really well acted by Andrew Robinson. Yeah. Well, you know, th there's th there's a class of actors, and you know we we've praised them many times, but it's just the makeup falls away, the setting falls away. You're you are left with this like unescapable emotional core. Every all, all of the other things are you know set dressing and permutations to make the story novel and more interesting. But like the the emotional core is what shines through the most, and that's probably why among many of the science fiction fantasy franchises I've enjoyed, this is the, one of the ones I come back to the most often. Like, this kind of stuff. Uh, Andrew Robinson wrote a novel uh, set after the end of Deep Space Nine, that like explores Garrick's backstory. It's called uh, A Stitch in Time. It was it was pretty good. Um, it developed the backstory of a uh, of Garrick's life. Well, it's clear that some of the actors, you know, really give a lot of thought to their characters' backstory and want whatever the writers can give them. And if the writers don't give them anything, they just make it up because yeah. they need it. You right. know, to be able to act. Yeah. Well, and to act to to really color their line readings. You know. And so it's great that they gave us that little bit of history there. Yeah. And like I said, with lesser actors, it might have felt like a cheap soap opera reveal. But Garrick acted like that man's bereaved son from the first moment that he was introduced. They, they put them in the same room on that Romulan warbird in Improbable Cause. Like that was the emotional dynamic, the unspoken, the entire time. I think they're doing Terry Farrell's ponytail differently now. I don't. I don't know when they started doing it. Maybe it was just this season, but it, instead of just doing a straight ponytail, they're doing like that side sweep back through the larger clip. So it's like a like a broader braid than just a ponytail. It's really flattering on her. Oh, something else. Uh, we we were talking, and I missed it. Was a line I wanted to call out um, when they were setting up the wormhole dealy and she goes yeah uh lenar was always better on theory than application again another lovely continuity touch um for uh the previous episode yeah <sighs> so cool shot like seeing all the ships coming through to be continued it's a good uh you know act break episode break kind of thing but <laughs> it's 
I just don't know how much. I mean, I'm sure you see where my hemming and hawing is going, Kevin. It's like, how much can they be penalized for not having a f- one, two freaking starships just in permanent residence? Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it was always like, once the it's, war- ju- it's just phony drama when it's like, oh, the nearest reinforcements are two days away. Why? Because that's the most right, dramatic thing. Right. Like, I mean, frankly, and one of my college roommates who um, I I had all the VHSs that I brought, I brought a bunch of them with me to college. Uh, so when TV sucked, there would just be something to watch. That must have been like all of your luggage. Oh, no, it was great. Well, I didn't bring everything, everything, but just like most of TNG, some DS9. Um, or like there were random tapes that had both TNG and DS9 because that, you know, they were just easier to tape because they were both on. Um, and my roommate's first question was, why wasn't Cisco made a captain like in season one? Like given the new strategic importance uh, like once the wormholes discovered, there's not a commander running the station. There's an admiral running the station. Like Cisco should have either been promoted or replaced by a flag officer with a fleet. The yeah, in- most of the starbases have an admiral, right? Right. So I get that, and I'm like, yes, yes. The reason he wasn't a captain was because we already had a captain. We couldn't have two captains. Magically, once uh, TNG is off the air, oh hey, Cisco gets that promotion. Um, once uh, Enterprises are TNG is off the air, they get the Defy. It's the same thing. Like, their goal was to have a show that played differently than the get in the ship and go explore stuff, so there were no ships. They painted themselves into a corner by constantly needing ships to do their... You know, maybe this could have been fixed with a few lines of dialogue, especially after the first season or two when the station was on its feet. Maybe the presumption is that the upgraded station was presumed to have the ability to defend against a fleet of anything but extraordinary size indefinitely. That's well, how... but the thing about that, it's like even if you upgrade the station, I have a super secret strategy for, you know, getting around that. Uh, yeah, just going around, you know? Yeah. It's like it's a station. If you just go somewhere else, it can't do shit, you know? All right, so let's table that as a concern. I mean, that is not yeah. the episode's problem. That is the series' problem. So it's kind of like, how but much- I think I think it does impact the the drama of this part of the episode. Yeah. So let me say, writing wise, you know, I think uh, you know all of the Garrick stuff is superb. You know, love the the prison camp. You know, the the basic setup. I mean, there were a lot of moving pieces to get us there. Uh, and so in some ways, this feels like all set up and no payoff. I mean, it paid off the Garrick part, but it didn't really pay off anything else. Um, you know, but overall, very enjoyable. Uh, nonetheless, I feel like they should have at least hung a lantern on this issue. You know, it's like if Starfleet cares this much and it's like, oh, we've been waiting finally they're coming you know the dominion invasion fleet why the hell are they two days away what are they doing you know it, i yeah. i feel like it's fair to penalize this episode for not at least throwing a line of dialogue in there to explain it even to have cisco complain about it it's like he could have a line where he says something like you know Two years ago, they were so worried about this, and now it's like everybody's forgotten. You know, like 
that's totally realistic. It's totally realistic for a government to lose sight of a priority, you know, to to not be prepared for something that they knew was going to happen, you know, yeah. because of bureaucratic oversight, because of politics, whatever. But they didn't they didn't hang that lantern. And so I mean they they for call to arms they actually hang the lantern with the um actually hang on was it this episode we were talking, so we might have missed it, but is this the episode where it's either this one or the season finale when Cisco goes between the war with the Klingons and, and the recent Borg attacks, Starfleet is stretched pretty thin. And I'm trying to remember if it was this episode or Call to Arms where Cisco points out that between the war with the Klingons and the recent Borg incursion, they just don't have the ships. Because if it's in this episode, I think that does at least kind of address your concerns. I don't. I don't remember seeing that in this episode. I don't think it's in this one. I mean, we we could yeah, go gonna... back and look, but e- even so, it the Borg was one ship. You know, it took it's out like, a lot and of... th- this is a problem with the Borg story. It's like they keep no, sending um, one ship. I pulled it up, um, in 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 the uh, one of the other websites that. Uh, yeah, uh, in Cisco's announcement that the recent attack and war Borg attack, war with the Klingons, is less Starfleet, quote, spread pretty thin and susceptible to an invasion. Yeah, yeah, this was in this episode. We just missed the dialogue while we were talking. Right. So right. it is there. It is not perfect because there should still just be a fleet there all the time. There's spread thin. Okay, if it's spread thin, then you'd think this would be one of the places it would be spread. Two, yeah, uh, yes, I... I agree. It is a. It flaw. would be much more dramatic to have five ships not be able to do anything than to have no ships and be like, "Oh gosh, DS Nine, are they going to survive?" You know, it's, it just feels artificial. Uh, yeah, yeah. Even okay. if you say, "Yeah, like throw," they do this once. Once they retake the station from the Kling, uh, from the Dominion in season six, they become home of the Seventh Fleet, and every establishing shot of Deep Space Nine for the rest of the series has a handful of Starfleet and Klingon vessels just lazily orbiting the station or yeah. on one of the docking arms. And I applauded every time I saw it. They should have done that ages ago. And I agree. Well, they've even got the freaking Nebula class, you know, starship in the title sequence now, but never during the episode. It's like, it seems like they've almost completely sidestepped that this place is a starbase, that it's a hub of commerce that there are always ships around here. It's like, so yeah, it, it bugs me. All right. <laughs> I've, I've indicated that it bugs me. Um, acting. There's nothing bad yeah. to be said about nope. it. No bum notes at all. Uh, one, two, three, four, at least four terrific guest actors, you know, and probably a, a good case to be made for a fifth uh, with Torazial. Um, yes. What are you going to say? <laughs> it kicks butt. Yeah. Heck, even, even, uh, you know, Alexander Siddig yeah. did really well. Yeah. Yeah. After being kind of checked out for the past like 10 shows. Well, he wasn't getting any sleep. You know what that's yeah. like. <laughs> Granted. Sure. You know, his wife was having a baby. She had to keep acting, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Okay, um, production values, the asteroidal uh, penal colony, awesome, inside and out. 
Yeah, definitely kick-ass set and model. Um, if anyone's looking, there's a great uh, Deep Space Nine PC game called uh, The Fallen, and part of it takes place on either that very asteroidal prison or a very similar one down to like the little trapezoidal panels. Awesome game and awesome to wander around that uh, that set. Mm. Um, the nebula shot was really cool. Um, yeah. The, uh, the, the looks at the fleet were okay. You know, we haven't gotten any... It, it's had that kind of cut-and-paste look to some degree. Um, you know, it's like they've got three models and they're just sort of duplicating them. Yeah. So they haven't done any great space battle choreography as yet. Uh, but still, the ship design was pretty neat. Um, you know, definitely above-average production values. Uh, so, I mean, at the end of the day, my rating is going to be a four on this. And... It's two things. So one we've talked about at length now, you know, the whole lack of any Starfleet support, straining my credulity. But the other thing is just that I feel like this is a lot of setup, you know. So if I'm looking at other two-parters, uh, you know, say Homefront um, or Best of Both Worlds Part 1, you know, maybe to their second episode's detriments, the first episode had a lot of payoff within just the first episode and this one it's like it really makes you want to watch the second one but just judging it on its own as a single episode i feel like it's lacking well, enough resolution given that it's it, a, it's intentionally two-parter it's not like we're yeah shoehorning in the uh second half to create a two-parter where none existed i think the fact that it so makes me want to watch the second episode and doesn't waste any of its um resolution it's not like birthright where we resolved an entire plot yeah. to the it's like now it. the episode's done and we'll tell you another story kind of related right no so, so i i like that so yeah i actually i think that's almost a virtue like every time i watch this episode i'm like jumping up and down in my seat a little to like watch the next one i yeah. like i this is a five for me i i, I understand the, the the problem of what starfleet and the producers of star trek's lack of wisdom about fleet allocation in the alpha quadrant aside well the the that part of the drama is artificial and i it's and i get that but it's it's an old problem and it's one i've learned to make peace with <laughs> Um, but everything just works. Every frame is just. It, it, this episode practically hums like it's it's like a taut bow wire. It's just like it, it, there's so much here. Uh, like every character has something interesting to do and an interesting, believable point of view about the events, and like no one oversells their position or forgets their position conveniently. Like that's just like everything here works so well. Like. And you're right, it's a line of dialogue to fix the problem. Five ships will be here, it won't make a difference. Done. Yeah. We've solved the problem. No, look, a four is a great episode. Yeah. You know? I mean, a four is... If the whole series were fours, it would be the greatest series <laughs> in the history of the universe. You know? Um, so, I stand by it. I, I, you know, it just... It sticks in my craw. <laughs> and I, 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 I can't take it. Yeah, I, 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 I can I won't stand for it. If... if if that's the only, if all my fives only had that like problem with one subset of the episode, I'd be I'd be happy as a duck in water. I am I am happy giving this a five. 
I, you know, I don't want to ruin it for you, but, uh, you know, I think the second part of this delivers on all of the, yeah. you know, yeah. promises of the first part. And because of one particular sequence the- with Worf, uh, definitely catapults itself into five territory. Uh, but we'll get there when yeah. we podcast it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a four. Um, okay. Well, it's, it's, it's a total it's a of very nine. Good four. Nine out of ten. Not bad. Not bad at all. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a. It's a. I mean, look, it's not as good as yesterday's Enterprise. It's not as good as uh, Cause and Effect, right? There's very little science fiction going on. Yeah. Uh, if I want to rest on that old chestnut, you know, um, you know, that there's there's no real sci-fi element to the story. And to be fair, you know, although the Garrick story is interesting. He is a peripheral character, you know. I also, I think, you know, my criticism about letting us know that Bashir was a changeling too soon was a missed opportunity. You know, uh, Odo didn't have a whole lot to do in this episode. In fact, his whole scene was kind of pointless. Yeah. It's like Odo's moving into his place. Okay. So, um, I think maybe there was one too many Torazi all scenes. Like maybe they could have more effectively done some of the political work or the, the you know, prison drama kind of stuff. Mm, yeah, I don't mind it. I mean, they 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 might have collapsed like two conversations into one with her and Dukat, but I'm never gonna say no, Mark Alemo, You you can't have another scene. Um, yeah. So, but if nothing else, every time Torzial was on screen, so was so was Ducat. So I'm not I'm not mad. Sure. Well, and, and the actress did a fine job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just every I love this two parter. I might love it more than Improbable Cause and Die's cast. I don't know. They're both good. I think that's I I definitely agree there. Totally. Absolutely. That this because this comes after that. It feels like the foundation has been laid. Improbable cause in the Dias cast, it felt very sudden. You know, it's like, and now suddenly DS9 is good and has a point, you know, whereas this is like, and now the stuff that we've been working on for the past season is coming to fruition. You know, fruition is a lot more satisfying than, oh, here's an interesting new idea that is completely unprecedented in the show. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think this is better drama. I think it's, you know, with the exception of the whole, where's the fleet? Oh, it's in the Laurentian system. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to, you know, bring in a J.J. Abrams reference there, you know, but I think I guess that's the reason it irks me so much. It, it's just it's that one little bit of, you know, laziness that mars an otherwise, you know, quite beautiful facade. Yeah, I... I, 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 I take your point. It just doesn't, like, I'm, like, shaking. I want to be, like, it, 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 right now, in real time, it is, like, almost 1 a.m. And No, I want to watch the next episode, yeah, too. I'm so like, I, right. I, I completely grant that, you know, there's, there, there's a momentum that is undeniable. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 as many times when we've given out nines in both directions, um, 
I understand your point. And don't get me wrong, it's not the best five. It's not the highest five in the series. But uh, it's it's in the top 20% for me. Well, a five should be the top 10%, right? Oh, it's because of the bell curve. What well, You know what I meant. <laughs> okay. So it's in the top 10%. Yeah. The, the, so yes, there, there are five. There are five categories. Yeah. It's late. It's, math is hard. I believe the way we've set our curve is it's, you know, 10 for the outliers, 20 for the middles, and then uh, what would that make? 20, 40, 60, and 40% yeah. for the, the yeah. fat part. Yeah. Okay. So. Mm. That it's nine out of ten for uh, for the first part of this two-parter, and we will be back soon with the uh, uh, conclusion. Yes, tune in next time. Same DS9 channel. <laughs> no, same DS9 time, same DS9 channel. Uh, you know, Not how will they get out of this one? All right. Have a good night, everyone. Yep.